Okay, with that, we're going to transition into our time in the Word now. So our text today is going to be Psalm 110. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up there. Uh, if you don't, like, you can use your phone or you can follow along with me on the screen. But I would like to invite you all to stand as you're able to, to honor the reading of God's Word. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we approach you right now asking more than anything else, that you give us eyes to see Jesus Christ. Think of the words of the, the hymn we sang this morning, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. Oh, what a wonderful mystery this is. And would, God, that you would show us the beauties, the majesty, the power of Christ. And yet we know that in this world, we see such a, such a dim shadow of who you truly are. We live in a world filled with violence, filled with pain. I think of our guests here today in their country of origin, Pakistan, with so many scores of people being senselessly killed by terrorism. We pray that the scepter of Jesus would go forth, causing the nations to bow to him, that his life, his death, his resurrection would be the transforming power that we know that it is, we pray that we would see that here in Fort Collins as well as we uh, strive to live faithfully for him. So Lord Jesus, exalt your name. Make me less so that you can become more. Help us, I pray, to see you through your word. Increase the blessing that you've already given and help us, I pray, to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. Okay, so if, um, if someone were to ask you and what's, what's the most important passage in the Bible? What would you say to them? Obviously, a, a few come to mind. There's the tried and true John 3.16, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Or you could go to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Of course, we could go to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the meek. Or we could think of Jesus' own invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or perhaps you'd want to go to the Old Testament. Maybe you think the most important words in the Bible are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Perhaps you could go to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, where he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or maybe you turn to the Psalms. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel, or uh, sorry, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who doesn't stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or like we went to very recently in our sermon series on the Psalms here, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's the most important passage in the Bible? Now, I think I'm actually asking an impossible question here. But for any of you who've taken the time to read through the Bible, you know like I know that not every passage in the Bible packs the same amount of punch. You know, when you go through the long genealogies or the list of temple furnishings, there are times where you're like, okay, like I'm, I'm ready to move on to the next chapter here. So what I'm not saying here, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that Psalm 110 is the most important passage in the Bible. I don't, I don't need those sort of expectations on this sermon. But what I will mention is that Psalm 110, you guys should know this. I mean, if you don't know it already, you will know it here now. Psalm 110 is the most quoted passage of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So what does that mean? Well, for starters, it means that if you're in my life group, you're really tired of me saying that. <laughs> but more importantly, it means that this psalm was vital for the early church's understanding of who Jesus actually is. Now, there's a good chance some of you are actually looking at Psalm 110 right now and thinking to yourself, like, really? <laughs> this? This is the most quoted passage in the, Old, in the New Testament. This. Oh my goodness, yes. Yes, it is. This psalm is so unbelievably rich. It intersects with so many other ideas that are floating around through Scripture. It describes this wonderful figure who brings together attributes that no one else in the world has ever brought together. And most of all, this psalm is vitally important for us to understand who Jesus is. And as we'll see in this passage, Knowing who the true Jesus is, is vitally important. Okay? This psalm is vitally important for us to understand who the true Jesus is, and understanding the true Jesus is vitally important. That might sound a little too basic for you, but just wait. Like, this, this psalm is bigger than any of us could possibly imagine. And so, I mean, we're just going to scrape the surface this is just an aside, but I read as I was preparing for this, Martin Luther wrote a, I think it was like either 120 or 240 page commentary on this psalm. This one. <laughs> it's incredible. So, so here's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something a little different here. What I want to do is invite you guys into a worshipful contemplation of the person of Jesus Christ. Don't let this just be a sermon where you're sitting, listening, like, oh, fascinating, oh, interesting, that's, that's so odd and strange and wonderful. Like, I want you, through this sermon, through the preaching of God's word, to glory in Jesus Christ. Because that's what the early church did. And so we're going to do it by looking at Jesus through three different lenses. He's an all-powerful king. He's an all-merciful priest. And we're going to look at him through the lens of a world full of bodies, which 
admittedly sounds a little weird, so you're just going to have to wait and see what I do with that. All-powerful king, all-merciful priest, world full of bodies. So let's go. Uh, Look with me at verses 1 through 3. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So what's going on here? I mean, essentially what it is, is we have a divine human king ruling in the midst of his enemies, and his demands are total. You'll notice as I read this, I made special note to read the superscription, a psalm of David. You see these superscriptions all throughout the book of Psalms, and it's not altogether clear whether or not they were actually part of the original psalm, or if they are just later editions. And for the most part, it really doesn't matter. Whether or not they're there, it doesn't really add to or take away from the text a whole lot. But that is not true with this psalm. David wrote this psalm. And that's really important for us to understand, because the guy who made David told us that. See, during Jesus' Passion Week, while he was in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and religious leaders, essentially the guys who were Jesus' enemies, were trying to trap him by asking a bunch of really difficult questions. They asked him religious questions. They asked him questions about where he got his authority. They even asked him political questions, like you guys know, like is it, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? They were, they were looking for a gaffe. They were trying to trap Jesus They were looking for a clip to play over and over on the news to show the whole world that Jesus isn't truly who he said he was. But how does Jesus answer this? I'm just across the board. He knocks the answers out of the park. Like, he does it with wisdom. He does it with insight. He does it with nuance. And then finally, Jesus turns to his questioners. And he's like, okay, let me ask you a question. My turn here, guys. In Matthew 22, he turns to them and says, Whose son is the Christ? And Pharisees and religious leaders of the day must have looked at each other and thought, like, really? Like, that's your question? Everyone knows the answer to that. It's David. Like, the Christ, the Messiah, that's going to be a son of David. And Jesus retorts, how is it then that David, in the spirit, calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? Silence. No one there could answer that question besides Jesus. So who's David talking about here? Um, Really quick explanation. Uh, Like if you guys, let's talk about the two lords in this text. If you guys have Bibles like mine, you'll see that the first Lord in here is in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is how our English Bibles convey the idea that it's talking about the revealed name of God. It's talking about Yahweh, Jehovah. um, Well, yeah, Jehovah is just a really bad King James version of Yahweh anyway, so don't worry about that. Um, The the second Lord, though, the the only the capital L Lord, uh, this is referring to to a master, a ruler, a king. And as many Jews in Jesus' day believed, it's talking about God's anointed king his Messiah, his Christos, his Christ. You know, one of the things that you actually need to understand is that if you were an ancient Israelite, you grew up in a kingdom story. You would have grown up with your 
grandparents telling you stories about the great rulers of old, and they would have told you for sure about the greatest ruler of all, King David himself. David's rule was the high watermark of Israelite culture. They were the regional superpower underneath his watch. And this is not merely because David was just some awesome, fantastic guy. This is because God loved David. In fact, God so loved David that in 2 Samuel 7, God tells David, you're going to have a son on the throne forever. You will have a forever king come from your dynasty. So most scholars believe that when you open up to Psalm 110, what you're actually reading is a coronation psalm. It's a, a song that you sing when a new king is being put into office. You know, it'd be kind of, we don't really do this as Americans, but it'd be kind of like if we sang at the presidential inauguration, which, regardless of your feelings on Donald Trump, you 100% know that guy would love it. (laughs) (laughs) But David is writing a song for a king. And he would never call one of his sons Lord. Not even during his son's inauguration. Like in an honor culture like you see in the ancient Near East, no, you never have a father referring to their son as Lord. Never. So we're not just talking about one of David's sons here. We're talking about someone who's much greater than that. And, and not only is he greater than one of David's sons, this is David's Lord. This is someone who is greater than David. And then we have this idea that the right hand of Yahweh, the right hand of the supreme God. You guys know what the right hand means? Like if you sit at the right hand of a king, it means that you share equally in his authority. It's like when Joseph was brought up to serve next to Pharaoh in Egypt. You read about that in the later chapters of Genesis. Like Joseph's rule in Egypt was equal with that of the king. That's the idea being conveyed here. This, this Christ is being exalted to the right hand of Yahweh himself. But this Lord, this Christ, he's he's not just king over a country. He's not just the king over Israel, even though his scepter extends from Zion. But he's king over the cosmos. He's reigning at the right hand of the Lord Most High. So this is someone who's not only greater than David, but is literally greater than any human being who's ever existed. This is a king on level with God himself. This is a divine human king. But we go on to see that this divine human king is not actually welcomed in this world. Typically, someone like a general is only brought up to the right hand of a king if they've actually already defeated all their enemies and and shown their faithfulness and service and all of that. But what we see here is that Yahweh is taking this Christ and saying, you shall rule in the midst of your enemies. The world that this Christ is ruling over is a world in rebellion. It's a world that has largely rejected the rule of God. It's a world where he rules in the midst of his enemies. You know, I said that if you were an ancient Israelite, you would have grown up in a kingdom story. But truthfully, we've all grown up in kingdom stories. Now, this is why stories like King Arthur or stories like Lord of the Rings or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or even Harry Potter, like that's why these things have such deep and abiding appeal to us. Like a great ruler has been banished from their land, banished from their realm, banished from their magic school, and the whole cosmos is awaiting the return of their once 
and future king, when he will destroy their oppressors and bring freedom back. Now, if you disagree with me on that, just think of how people on the right felt like when they had Obama as their president. And shifting the scales a little bit, think about how people on the left feel about having Trump as their president. Everybody demands a just and righteous king. Everybody demands a just and righteous king. And we'll talk more about our desire for justice here later. But for now, there's just this side to the human condition where we all recognize intuitively that something is wrong. There's just so much disorder. There's so much chaos. There's so much evil that just feels so deeply out of place. And that is what a world in rebellion against its creator looks like. This is what a world infected by sin looks like. Sin. I think everyone here has a pretty decent idea about what that is, but how would you define sin to a modern culture like ours? And John Stott actually really helpfully does this for us. He says, sin, he boils down sin to this. He says, sin is human beings putting themselves in the place where only God should be in charge, namely in charge of their own lives. And that sort of shifts the problem of seeing all this evil and this chaos and this destruction out in the world and brings it down to something that's right here. Now, many years ago, there was a, a newspaper that put out a question to an audience of intellectuals asking them, what's wrong with the world? And the Catholic author G.K. Chesterton responded as follows. Dear sirs, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I, I thought that was funnier than you guys did. <laughs> now, now, if you believe that, though, if you believe that what's wrong with the world is, is you, it sort of complicates our desire for justice, doesn't it? You know, it's a little bit hidden here in our passage because we have English translations here, but David is prophesying. Like a more little tra literal translation of the beginning of verse 1 is an oracle of Yahweh to my Lord. This is the way that throughout the Old Testament, the prophets start their prophecies. A, a, you know, an oracle of Yahweh to this king or an oracle of Yahweh to this nation. Like this is, this is how prophecies sound. So what's the significance of that? It's a promise. It's the promise that Yahweh is going to make his Messiah reign. He will rule over his enemies until God himself has brought them all underneath his feet. The idea here is that eventually this whole rebellious world will bow to the Christ. God has vowed it. It's an oracle. Now, if we read ahead in this psalm, we see that kings will be crushed, nations will be judged, filled with corpses, and where it says chiefs will be shattered, it literally, like you probably have it in your little notes at the bottom there, where it says chiefs, that word actually just means heads. Like it could mean heads of nations, but it could also just mean heads. Heads are going to get crushed. That's what justice looks like in this world. It's bloody. Oppressors will be punished. The wicked will be destroyed. And not to put too fine a point on it here, but this Christ is Jesus. 
The people who knew Jesus best, his, his friends, his disciples, they categorically tell us that this psalm is about Jesus. It's, it's kind of weird. Like, everybody likes Jesus, as long as you don't go into specifics. Like, people enjoy him as the idea of an example. Many people consider him a good moral teacher. But you get to this Jesus is Lord stuff, or that Jesus is coming to judge the earth sort of thing, and people lose their minds. But I think the mistake we make is the same mistake the Pharisees made. You know, they had their views about the Messiah and what he was supposed to look like. He was supposed to be this political figure. He was supposed to be this liberator. He was supposed to be a son of David. And, well, well, honestly, he was supposed to look a lot like the king that we're reading about here in Psalm 110. But we have Jesus here, a homeless preacher, a worker of miracles, and he just didn't fit their box. In our, in our more sensitive day, we kind of get away from the judgment, political, liberator sort of thing, and, and we make the equal but opposite error. We tend to believe that Jesus is just a well-meaning soul who wishes people would get, to get along with themselves better. You know, this psalm and the New Testament author's use of this psalm will not let us have that simple of a Jesus. Jesus does not fit into our boxes. God, by definition, will break any box that we try to fit him into. And that's because God, when God is personal, you can't fit him into a box. Jesus does not fit into our boxes. Jesus is not the Messiah you want. He's probably not the God that you want. He's the God who is. He's the Messiah you need. So before wrapping this whole, this whole side of things up, I just want to ask like a really pointed question here that gets to the heart of whether or not you believe in the real Jesus or in a, in a Jesus that you've been able to fit into your own box. Does the Jesus you believe in ever contradict you? Does he ever push back against you? Does he ever challenge you? Does he ever make you uncomfortable? Does he unsettle your life from time to time? If God is personal to you, then if Jesus, if Jesus is personal to you, then you will answer yes to every single one of those questions. C.S. Lewis put it in a way that's really hard to improve upon. Talking about our modern tendency to depersonalize God, he says this, an impersonal God, well and good. A subjective God of beauty, truth, and goodness inside our own heads, better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap, best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, the hunter, king, husband. That is quite another matter. A personal Jesus is an altogether different thing because a personal Jesus makes demands on you that are total. I mean, if if Jesus is who he says he is, namely God come in the flesh, how could it be any other way? And so we kind of get a hint of of this in verse 3. Most of us here have grown up in a a nation that has an all-volunteer army. So when we read about these people who are freely offering themselves to this king, it doesn't really hit us with the gravity that it should. Because, see, in like ancient times, if you fought a war, you either created something that was like a draft where you just get all your peasants and say, hey, king told you you have to come and fight, or you get mercenaries, you pay them to do your dirty work for you. But a volunteer army was 
not unheard of, but it wasn't common. A more literal translation of verse 3, though, at least the very beginning of it, is that these people are going to make free will offerings of themselves. This is the language of sacrifice. They will give everything. They will make sacrifices of themselves to this king because this king's demands are total. Now, before we move on, let me ask just one more pointed question here. Is this how you feel toward Jesus? Do you live as though he deserves everything from you? Or are you like me? You find yourself more often grumbling about the fact that Jesus isn't giving you everything that you want. The Lord of David is a king of unlimited power and authority. So who are we to approach him? I mean, really, who are we to approach him? We're people, this is who we are, we're people who need mercy. We're people who need an advocate. We need someone to intercede for us. We need a merciful priest. And so we read verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so what's going on here? First thing to point out is that we should note that what's going on here is, is of eternal significance. Like Just like we had Yahweh make an oath to the Lord of David, um, telling him you're going to be a forever king, we also have him uh, here saying you're going to be a priest forever. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So we have this eternal promise from God that this Messiah king is also going to be a Messiah priest after the order of Melchizedek. You know, as far as, like, obscure biblical characters go, like, Melchizedek is up there. (laughs) Like, (laughs) um, you know, he shows up in Genesis chapter 14 for a total of three verses and then leaves just as quickly as he came. You know, as the story is told, Abraham, who is the father of the faith, is returning from a victorious battle, and on his way back home, he runs into Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And we learn that the name Melchizedek, Melech means king, Zedek is righteousness. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king over this city, Salem. Shalom, peace. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. But even though he's a king, Melchizedek receives tithes from Abraham, and he goes on to bless him, which is what you do if you're a priest. And then Melchizedek just disappears. Like he's gone from the biblical record until Psalm 110, which is truly bizarre. <laughs> like, you know, I, I joked earlier about how cumbersome the things like the genealogies that we find throughout the, the Old Testament in particular are. But in Genesis, like, they actually serve a pretty vital function. In Genesis, anyone who's anyone has a genealogy. Like, you know who they are, you know who their sons are, you know who their fathers are, you know how long they lived, and even though you don't really care for the purposes of the scriptures, it's, what it's doing is highlighting for you, this is an important figure. But Melchizedek, he just shows up and leaves. We have no genealogy, we have no record of his death, he receives tithes and blesses Abraham, who's literally like the most important figure in the Old Testament, and for the ancient reader of this story, when, when Melchizedek is receiving tithes and blessing Abraham, what they're seeing is like, this guy's more important than Abraham. This guy is of more significance than Abraham. This guy's superior to Abraham. 
Melchizedek is superior to the father of the faith. You know, in, in the New Testament, Hebrews 7, 8, and 9 really uh, are like the divinely inspired commentaries on Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. For the writer of the letter of Hebrews, understanding Jesus in light of this character, Melchizedek, is vital to understanding who Jesus is. So most of what I'm telling you comes from there. But why is it important that this Messiah king be a priest in the order of Melchizedek? Well, for one thing, God had set aside an entire tribe of people to be his priests, the Levites. But he also had said that his anointed king is going to come from a totally different tribe, from Judah. And so if you're going to have a king priest, you're going to have to figure out a workaround here. And so in order to fulfill the law and fulfill prophecy, you need a different type of priesthood. But even just at like a practical level, like the, the role of kings and the role of priests are almost at odds with each other. Like in ancient Israel, the, the office of kings, the office, uh, the office of kings was like how God was represented to the people by a person. Like namely, like this king would represent the rule, authority, and judgment of God to the people. And yet the priests exist because they represent the people to God. Like the priests exist because God's people don't uphold God's law. The priests exist to administer mercy to people. Not only in terms of bringing sacrifices to God on behalf of them, but even just in terms of like taking care of the poor. Like if you wanted to give to the poor in ancient Israel, you gave your money to the priests. Or if you wanted, if, you know, if you were sick, you went to the priest. Just think about Jesus healing the leper saying, go and show yourself to the priest. Why would he do that? Well, the, the priests were the health officers. The king represented the ministry of judgment and the priest represented the ministry of mercy. And I was trying to think of a good analogy for this, but I, I heard one from Tim Keller that I just couldn't improve on. He says it's kind of a good illustration of this. It's kind of like police officers and social workers. Like, what's, what's interesting is that police officers and social workers are oftentimes working with, like, the exact same people, but they're oftentimes working at opposite ends. One of them is trying to administer justice. The other is trying to administer mercy. But the problem we have here with priests is actually the same problem we have with kings. In this world, there's no such thing as a perfect king. There's no one who administers justice perfectly, even though that's all what we want. And likewise, there's no one who really embodies our desire for mercy. I mean, how many times do you have to hear about religious professionals who've abused their, their offices of authority within churches or synagogues or whatever um, before you just give up on God entirely. And in fact, that's probably what more than a few of our neighbors have already done. That's exactly what makes a priest in the order of Melchizedek so shocking. The one who's going to come in judgment, the one who will crush the heads of kings, the one who will rule in the place of his enemies, he's also going to be the one who offers mercy to them. Mercy and love and grace. You know, I mentioned that religious professionals who, you know, abuse their power, like, like that's a bad thing, but the bigger problem is actually that not even the good priests were able to satisfy our deepest needs. Like, even the best priest in the Levitical system still had to offer sacrifices for their own sins, even before they offered sacrifices for everybody else. And even the best priests would die, you know, the sacrifices from whatever religious uh, group that you're affiliated with, they're never actually enough. 
They need to be offered over and over and over and over and over and over again. Like just sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. It's never enough to secure mercy. And this is true of the secular gods of our own age as well. Like, I mean, how many people have sacrificed in order to to advance in their careers? Like, how much do you really need to give to be the top dog there? What compromises are you willing to make to satisfy your own lusts? What do people who are given to addiction actually give up to feed their addiction? You know, for our middle schoolers and high schoolers here, which maybe there's a couple of them here, like, how much of yourself do you need to sacrifice in order to just get people to like you? And it's never enough. There's always a push to move further in your career. Addiction knows no boundaries. The desire to be loved and accepted by other people is a void that can never really be filled. And here's the startling truth. The one who has every right to reject us, the one who has the ability to cast you out, the one who can tell you that your sacrifices are never enough, is the one who is sacrificed for you. I mentioned earlier that John Stott quote where he uh, described what sin is. It's actually only half the quote. He finishes it by saying this. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. On a cross. I mentioned earlier that restoring justice looks bloody, but so does administering eternal mercy. And that contradiction finds its only resolve in the cross, where the justice of God was satisfied in punishing sin, and the mercy of God was displayed in providing a substitute. So David, remember he's prophesying in this psalm. It's an oracle from God. Yeah, I don't even think David could have seen what he was talking about. I don't think David could have seen that, you know, he might have had this vague notion of a king who would operate like a priest, but, but I don't think he could have ever guessed that this king-priest was going to become a sacrifice himself, a once-and-for-all sacrifice. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel. He is our king of righteousness. Jesus is our king of peace. He's our king of justice and our king of mercy. And when you are able to see that startling contrast of these realities in Christ, you should be overwhelmed by the beauty of it. This is why Paul references this in Romans 8.34. This is actually why I think this psalm gets quoted so much in the New Testament. But think about it. Romans 8.34, Paul is talking about Jesus, says he's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. He's a king and a priest. He's praying for you right now. This is why the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 10 says this, but when Christ had offered himself for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So this king who has every right to judge us is now interceding for you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows how you blew up at your kids this week. He knows how you mistreated your spouse this week. He knows that you went too far with your girlfriend 
or how you fell off the wagon or how you lied to cover your tail. And he understands and he pleads, forgive them. Do not hold this sin against them. And he's, a, he's a king come to rule in the midst of his enemies and he's the sacrifice for their sins. That's why Peter, in the first Christian sermon ever preached, goes to this psalm. In Acts 2, he tells his listeners, you know, this Messiah, this Lord of David, the one who's going to come and crush the heads of his enemies, you with wicked hands have crucified. And God has raised him from the dead. And once Peter quotes this psalm, and once the gravity of this situation settles on his listeners, it says that they were cut to the heart and cried out, what shall we do? We killed the king. Now, if this were just a conquering king, there's nothing they could do except await destruction. If it were just a priest, I honestly doubt they'd be cut to the heart. But since this is a king priest, Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 people that day had their lives transformed. Because Jesus transformed the relationship between a king and a priest, he can now transform you. And really, this understanding of who Jesus is transforms everything. Like, let's, just, let's finish our passage here, verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So I mentioned our last point here was a world full of bodies, which sounds pretty morbid. So how am I going to do this? Uh, watch, I guess. Um, there's a lot of people who would read a passage like this and just think, you know, this is exactly why I can't believe in any sort of religion. Like, it just produces so much violence. Like, look at this. You have kings being shattered. You have corpses, literally bodies piling up. You have heads of nations and heads of people being crushed. You know, in, in the immortal words of Jimmy Fallon, yeah. <laughs> Glad that one worked. Um, so people see this and say, this is why you have so much violence in the world, because people believe in a violent God, which, like, to their credit, has some legitimacy, right? Like, just think about, you know, our visitors today, we prayed for Pakistan, like, scores of people killed by senseless violence, by terrorists, just disrupting political rallies. But I'd say, like, exiling God, like, removing God from the situation here doesn't help anything. I mean, look at our own troubled times. I've, I've actually never heard so many intelligent people suggest that they think our country is on a course for civil war. Like, really, smart people are suggesting that. It seems insane to me. The problem here is actually not that people believe that God is going to bring judgment, but I, th I think the problem here is that the reason there's so much violence in the world is be precisely because people don't think that God is going to bring judgment. At least, you know, not without a little bit of their help. And so Miroslav Volf, he, in reflecting on the ethnic cleansing that happened in his own home of Yugoslavia, he talked about his belief in the existence of a God who judges. He said this, My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires, requires belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. Imagine, though, that you're in a war zone. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, 
been burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. And he goes on to say, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds with God's refusal to judge. What he's basically saying is that if you don't believe in a God who will judge, you will take vengeance into your own hands, and the cycle of violence will continue. But we look at Stephen in the book of Acts, in chapter 7, right? But he's the first Christian martyr. You know, he, as he's about to be stoned to death by his own people, he looks up to the heavens and says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It says they threw their stones at him, and as they were throwing them, his face glowed like that of an angel. In the face of violence, he was at peace, and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's our assurance that Jesus is at the right hand of God, waiting for him to put his enemies underneath his feet. That you can, that it's, it's this belief, it's this assurance that will turn, change, turn the church into a place of peace in the midst of a world full of tumult and strife and violence. So that's, that's one side of it. But I, I said that the death and resurrection of our king priest transforms everything. So how does it change all of this? And, and I'm going to try and be fast here. Like uh, the great Bible teacher, Ed Clowney, noticed something really incredible about this passage, about Psalm 110. And um, you'll notice here at, at the very end of this Messiah that we're talking about, we get this picture of someone drinking from a spring. You know, it, it seems like this is an allusion to the book of Judges where you have stories of, of deliverers like Gideon and like Samson, um, both of whom were deliverers in Israel, both of whom had tremendous military battles, uh, both of whom were very victorious, and both of whom had interaction. Like, you know, Gideon went to a stream right before he picked his 300 mighty men to go fight the Philistines. Samson went to a stream and drank it after killing a bunch of Philistines and, you know, revived his strength from drinking there. So I think that's what what David is pointing at here is like that, that sort of thing. Here's what these guys have in common. They were both deliverers. However, in David's mind, as he writes this psalm, really the only examples of deliverers that he has are warriors that delivered their people by heaping up the body count. Where it says here in verse 6 that he'll fill the earth with corpses. You know, I mentioned this earlier, but the word for corpses here is just bodies. He's, he'll fill, fill the world with bodies. And here's what Edmund Clowney noticed in Ephesians 1.20 as he was reflecting on this passage. So in, in Ephesians 1, Paul references Psalm 110 when he writes that Jesus was raised from the dead and seated at the right hand, far above all rule and authority, right hand of God, enemies underneath his feet. And then he goes on to say that God gave Jesus the church, which is his body, which fills all in all. In Jesus Christ, the enemies of God are not being heaped up like corpses, but they're being brought into his body. And the nations are being filled with the church. The world is being filled with the body of Christ. And indeed, there's still a type of death that needs to occur there. Just think about Colossians 3. If you've died with Christ, you've been raised with him. There is death that happens, but it results in resurrection. And this is where we'll close. Maybe. So, you know, this is, this is actually why 
the mission of this church is to equip you guys as body parts to help make more churches. Like, this is why we're a church-planting church. So what does it mean to be part of a body of this great king-priest? Well, in some measure, it means that we are king-priests ourselves. And this is exactly what Tyler Dell was talking about a few weeks ago when he was preaching, which you can, you can either thank him or blame him for this sermon, because um, <laughs> that's what got me going. But, but he, he preached on First uh, Peter 2, where it says, You are a chosen race, race a royal priesthood. Like Jesus, we've been given authority to go out into this world and preach the gospel, to call people to repentance from their sins, to tell them that they're in rebellion against the king who will come one day and judge them. But also, we're priests, so we can go into our communities taking the time to care for the needy, to heal the sick, to mend the broken, to support the poor, and to love our enemies, regardless of whether or not they ever believe like we do. And this is, this is how Christ is subduing his enemies. This is how Jesus will be victorious. He's doing it through his church. Now think about this with me. In verse 6, it says that he will shatter chiefs. And I mentioned earlier, like that literally means heads. And I can't help but think that there's echoes here of the first time that the gospel was ever promised to this rebellious world. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, after they sin against God, and after the snake tricks them, God tells Eve that there's going to be enmity between her seed, her children, and the children of the snake. And the devil, the snake, is going to bruise the heel of your son, which happened at the cross, but he will crush the head of that devil which happened in the resurrection. Now watch this. Romans 16.20. Paul says this to the church. To the church, he says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. In Christ, enemies are being made into our footstool. And there's just one more spot I want to go to to point out, especially as it relates to bodies. But after referencing this psalm, Psalm 110 in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus must reign until all of his enemies are put underneath his feet, like it says in Psalm 110. And the last of these enemies is death itself. That long shadow of death that's cast over this whole world, that great enemy will one day be defeated. And someday the graves will sprout like gardens. The earth will give up its dead. And this world will be filled with resurrected bodies who are serving their great king priest. And this is what produces a humble confidence in people. Humble because this is the Lord of glory. This is the Lord that we sinned against. This is the Lord who has every right to cast us out. And yet confident because we know the priest after the order of Melchizedek who made a once and for all sacrifice for sin. So I'll, fin- I'll, I'll actually finish now with these words from uh, James Stewart talks about Jesus in these words. He says, He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he said that he would come on the clouds of heaven in the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His company at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. 
No one was ever so half-kind or compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded of the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully, he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another in their mad dash to get out of, away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, and yet at the last, himself he would not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrasts that confronts us in the gospel. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. And so I finish, we're going to finish this contemplation of the glory and majesty of Jesus with an invitation to come to him. We take communion every week to remember the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, to remember his victory over the grave, and to remember that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so I'm going to invite you guys to come up to this, and as you come, remember Christ partake of Christ. If you've never come to Christ before, this is the invitation. Come to his table. All will be welcome here. Satisfy yourself with good things.